Titus chapter 3, and I'm going to read from the, I should read from the LSB, shouldn't I? I should. There we go. Titus chapter 3. We, uh, we've been reading through Titus the last couple of weeks, hence uh, while we're at, why we're in chapter 3. Morning, Todd. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. So again, remember the context. It's always critical when uh, we're reading a passage of Scripture um, to, to understand something of the context, right? The neighborhood, what's happening here. And this is the Apostle Paul writing about 65-ish A.D., to Titus, one of his disciples, who was on the island of Crete, and he had uh, sent him sent him to plant churches and to kind of organize churches as people were coming to faith in Christ out of a, a, just a wicked, rowdy, uh, gl gluttonous, uh, very immoral Cretan culture. And so Paul is telling Titus, "Look, we need to." Here's some instruction for you to instruct them and to get things organized and to uh, get some godliness going on that island. And so he concludes here with chapter three, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. Why should we do that, Paul? Verse three, for we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But, verse 4, here's, here's the clincher right here. But when the kindness uh, and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, verse 5, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration. There's that word regeneration we've been studying in Romans. And renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and conflicts about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Our sovereign Father and God, we thank you this morning that uh, you are on the throne of the universe. Uh, though we might not understand and even be discouraged by so many things that happen uh, globally, locally, personally, nationally, uh, we understand what the Psalms say, that the Lord reigns. Let the earth tremble. Let the earth rejoice. And Father, as we set sail for a day we want to really remember verse four and five what we read here that the kindness and love of god our savior has appeared in jesus christ and to die for our sins on the cross to pay the penalty for all the ways in our lives in which we have failed to love you as you deserve to love people perfectly as you command us to in your word in Matthew 22, 37, and 39. And you have not left us in our condemnation, but motivated by your love and your mercy, you have sent the Savior to pay for our sins. He who loved perfectly died on the cross as our substitute and rose from the grave. And so, Father, let that be our anthem. Let that be the motivation. Let that be our trust. Let Christ be our trust and our motivation for the day these dear brothers thank you for the fraternity that we have in christ in a day that's hostile 
hostile to truth, that we would not that we would fix our eyes on Christ. And I pray that, Father, uh, that as we look to your word now, this Thursday and every Thursday, that we would be changed. We'd be the better off for the battles we face in life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, gentlemen. So uh, just a little preview of, of uh, where we're headed. Um, so we've talked about uh, masculinity and Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, plan for men. Uh, I saw a thing last night where uh, uh, our vice president's husband was uh, disdaining the idea of masculinity. And, uh, and this, so this is just kind of the common waters and swim today. Uh, a man ironically enough, was doing that. And so that's a shameful, sad thing. Um, because Genesis 1 and 2 uh, has told us that God has created two genders. There are males and there are females. And that both of them have a particular God-designed uh, and God-commanded role. Uh, men don't have a feminine side and they're not supposed to. Uh, they're males. A woman is supposed to have a feminine side. Um, and, and so God has, God has created these two genders to glorify himself and to fulfill uh, their role in creation. Um, and we've looked at that. We studied that in detail in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, we've studied uh, masculinity and marriage, looking at passages like Ephesians 5.25, looking at the way in which the curse uniquely complicates uh, marriage, men and women. Uh, we also looked at masculinity and work, that uh, God has called men to work, and really that starts back in the garden. It's the tediousness of work that's a curse. Uh, we looked at men and the fear of God. Speaking of which, one of our memory verses, Psalm 128, uh, verse 1. Uh, let's see. Cole, you got that? It's, it's Psalm 128. I know we're just kind of waking up here. Um, Let's see, Rick. You got Psalm 128, verse 1. How blessed is everyone? Yeah, the man. We'll say the man. How about, yeah. <laughs> Amen. So we saw that blessing in life, God's kind of blessing, uh, if we want to launch into a life of blessing, God's kind, right? Which is the only kind. It, the, the fundamental issue is that we would fear the Lord. And this doesn't mean fear like a, you know, like a puppy down at the humane, the, I don't know, the pound or whatever was beaten. And it, you know, it fears people or whatever. But an but a awe, a, a reverence, right? A respect, a love, honor. Uh, and obedience, right? Th this is how you set sail into the life of blessing. You fear the Lord. Well, which Lord? The only one, the God of the Bible. And then synonymously, as, as uh, Rick heroically qu quoted there, walk in his ways. So while f the fear of God, as we think about a life of blessing, and by the way, no matter... No matter how much a man has not walked in the Lord's ways, if he's willing to turn to Jesus Christ by faith, and no matter how much a man may have experienced frustration in his life, his relationships, his work, his marriage, whatever, if he is willing to set sail God's way, he will begin to experience blessing. That's a promise from Scripture. And so how blessed are those, you know, as I read a verse like that, I, I want to say what follows that? Because I don't know about you, but I want and I need a life of blessing from the Lord and the kind of world we live in and the various things we all struggle with. So there's two things that we set sail there. Fear the Lord. That, that's a heart attitude. That's a mindset of the soul. Okay? It doesn't stop there because life carries out from the heart fear, awe, reverence, respect, love, honor, obedience, right? Obedience is kind of 
here, walk. This is, this is, this is living, living it out. Okay. Obeying his word. So whether it's my marriage, my singleness, my job, uh, a broken circumstance in which I find myself, whatever it is, if a man will set sail here, he'll be blessed of the Lord. No, life won't be perfect. Yes, things will still be broken in this world. It's not going to fix external circumstances entirely. But as he does this, okay, I'm going to set myself to fear God and walk in his ways. Uh, I, I assure you, and I promise you, gentlemen, on the authority of Scripture, of, of the 66 books of Scripture, that the result will be blessing and marriage, singleness, work, fathering, etc., etc. Okay, these big areas, you can could, you could include others, recreation, um, and so on. Okay? Thoughts on that? Comments? So, because of that verse, and by the way, Psalm 128, where this comes from, I should write that down. Uh, sorry, Psalm 128, 1. That, that's, that's in the context, Psalm 127 and 128, in the context of a psalm of the man's life. Okay? Family, work, etc. Those two psalms, 127 and 128, they're twin psalms. All right, uh, Kevin. Do I need to be running this thing here? Okay. I'm like, would you do that, Todd? Thank you. Okay. All right. So this is what we've been endeavoring to do in in this in in our study together and walking together with men, uh, with each other as men. So as we set out, we're some topics still we're going to look at. We're going to look at masculinity and secret sin, uh, integrity, compromise, things like that. Uh, we're going to look at masculinity and, and pride, uh, masculinity and worship in the local church. And we're also, also we've had some requests uh, to look at masculinity in the mind, um, biblical thinking, biblical discernment, uh, strengthening my grid for filtering through the things that are coming at me, the things, I, the things that are false ideas and, you know, right ideas and semi-right ideas, which are wrong ideas. Okay, and if you have any requests uh, on top of that, don't hesitate um, to let me know. We'll, we'll do our best to entertain them. But in the meantime, uh, this morning's notes, if you, didn't get, if you don't have these notes, throw up a hand. And um, they're masculinity and fathering. They were handed out two weeks ago. Um, if you don't have those, uh, throw up a hand, and, and Pastor Matt or somebody will uh, grab those for you. There should be some extras. Masculinity and fathering now you might be thinking well you know i'm not a father and uh, or i'm past that age or i'm not yet to that age or or i haven't done that why why in the wide world of sports should i listen to this it's a great question um number one because uh we want to know what's in the word of god and these principles on fathering uh, carry through to principles of discipleship to my own walk with the lord um as i come alongside other men um as i think through what uh, the garbage, the culture, and uh, the, the Satanism that's propagated in the culture and the godlessness, secularism, and leftism right now from the culture. I want to know how to discern through that and think rightly about that. Um, and also simply because it's in Scripture. And so all Scripture is profitable, 2 Timothy 3, 16, uh, and 17 says. Thank you, Matt. I think uh, Brother Dean might need some back there. Do you have some? You got some? Okay, great. Thanks, Dean. Good to have you here, by the way. <clears throat> So, so as we look at masculinity and fathering, just a couple qualifications here. This is a light survey of the topic. Uh, we have our uh, cornerstone parenting class. We have our cornerstone parenting class that goes into quite a bit more detail. And I think a lot of us have taken that. We did one recently in Sunday school. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna not, so if, if, if you're wondering like, hey, I think you're missing a lot of things in this fathering class, see the parenting class if you haven't been through that yet okay um, and that's that will that probably will be a legitimate observation um so so this will be just a light survey saying some things that maybe i that we didn't say in the cornerstone parenting class um, i would also strongly encourage you brothers if you haven't already uh to get if if you're uh embarking on fatherhood or just want to learn more about it or whatever want to build your library 
some excellent books on the topic. Um, my number one favorite book on parenting, besides the Bible itself and the book of Proverbs, which is the number one book, is J.C. Ryle's book. It was written about a hundred and, how long ago was that written, Aaron? 150 years ago, maybe. The good Bishop Ryle, a, a British brother, called Duties for Parents. It's short, it's mercifully short, but not mercifully, uh, well, helpfully meaty, I should say. <laughs> it's thick. Um, shepherding a child's heart. And then as far as uh, more particularly to fathering, raising men, not boys, by uh, uh, Mike uh, Fabares down in uh, Orange County, an excellent, excellent book, uh, Dear Brother, uh, The Masculine Mandate by Rick Phillips, uh, Doug Wilson's book, Future Men, and The Word-Filled Family by uh, Dr. MacArthur. So just some helpful stuff here. Now, I want to talk about briefly the need for fathering in the world. This is more of a, a, a look at general revelation, a sociological observation, the need for fathering. Um, natural light, the, the, the natural light that God has given us is enough to tell us that, whoa, we need, the world needs fathering. Uh, the condition, the moral condition of a society is a commentary on that society's view of and approach to fathering. So if you have a society like ours right now, where Junior at three years old or at 13 is, you know, being brought to drag shows and told that he can decide his own, he or she can decide his own gender and not disciplined and told that, you know, the founding fathers were a bunch of idiots of this country or whatever, that, 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 that's a commentary on fathering. That's going to look like something in society. And it's going to look like, you know, what we have now uh, for better or worse in various times and places. So the moral condition of a society is a commentary on that society's understanding of and carrying out of fathering, Right? This is not to say that if you do everything right in fathering, that society is going to turn out perfect because Romans 3.23 is still in the Bible. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17.9 is still in the Bible. Um, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? However, fathering does help and work. Okay. According to the, to the U.S. Census Bureau... Um, and I have the, all this footnoted uh, referenced in your notes there. 18.4 million children, that's one in four, live without a biological step or adoptive father in the house. In 2012, uh, the, the Census Bureau also, yeah, that, I mean, one in four. Think about that. That's no bueno. That is no good. That is not how God designed it. God designed it, dad and mom, right? And sometimes uh, under circumstances of no fault of the individual, that can't happen of the spouses, I should say. Um, in 2012, the Bureau reported, quote, with the increasing number of high divorce rate, with just one parent rose from 9.1% in 1960 to 20.7 in 2012. Currently, 55.1% of all black children, 31.1% of all Hispanic, and 20.7% of all white children are living in single-parent homes. So... <clears throat> Why do you think that's increased? There's always reasons behind things. This is, uh, we live in a logical universe. Why that increase from 1960 to 2012? Any thoughts? What kind of cultural shifts? Men not needing to be men. Exactly. That's exactly right. Richard, you got something? Well, I, I think that the, the state, uh, formally associated with having a child out of wedlock um, that was removed um, a combination of things the family or excuse me the, the, the fact that, that as a society we became less uh, cognizant of God's commands and also uh, government basically replaced the 
father with so with with government subsidies and so instead exactly of 16, catastrophic a 16 year old girl in 1930 is thinking i'm not gonna have sex with this guy because number one my parents would be ashamed of me if i get pregnant and i would be condemned in society but if i have this baby who's going to take care of it and that was removed by 1970 for sure yeah i would agree with that observation so as you have fatherlessness increase, and we're not saying that there aren't fathers, but they've abandoned it, right? So I think as John and Richard observed, you also have a, a, a correlated, a non-coincidental spiritual moral decay, okay? And, and I'm not just saying a guy who's in the home. Though, when the guy is not in the home, certainly that has a major effect on this. Okay, but it's not only that. Okay? Basic stuff, right? Okay. So, in 2016, roughly 40% of births in the U.S. occurred outside of marriage, up from 28% in 1990. And per ethnicity, 15 to 28% among whites, 34 to 52% among Hispanics, and 63 has 69% among blacks. I mean, just, just think about that for a minute. Um, our, uh, our friend, uh, is it Rob Woodson from the Woodson Institute, John? Um, has, has, it has, is, and has a lot to say about that and is doing a great work. Uh, that's, that's, his, that's his anthem, that fatherlessness is a huge, huge contribution to this decay. So, you know, there are various things we could say about that, but I think we could all agree and rightly say that those numbers are fundamentally a, a moral, spiritual problem, a child living without a dad. You know, if we were in a big war right now, like World War II or something larger, and all the dads had gone off to war and died, that might be, you know, a little, things would be a little bit different, but that's not the situation. There are men around just not men in the home embracing masculinity. Okay, this is a mass, this is fundamentally a biblical masculine issue. Uh, John Sowers has wrote, written from the father, the book, The Fatherless Generation. Children from fatherless homes account for, quote, children from fatherless homes, look at this, look at this statistic here 63% of youth suicides, 71% of pregnant teenagers, 90% of all homeless and runaway children. 70% of juveniles in uh, state-operated institutions, 85% of all youth who exhibit behavior disorders, 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger, 71% of all high school dropouts, 75% of adolescents in chemical abuse centers, and 85% of all youth in prison. Um, that, that's a catastrophic correlation. What do you got, Ian, our resident historian here? There you go, 400%, four times. Thank you, Ian. Um, in 1994, <clears throat> excuse me, the Swiss carried out an interesting extra survey. The question was asked to determine whether a person's religion carried through to the next generation, and if so, why, or if not, why not? There is one critical factor that uh, I think Sowers observed here. It is overwhelming, and it is this, quote, it is the religious practice of the father of the family that above all determines the future attendance at or absence from church of the children. Why is it that and less the mom from what we've been studying in scripture? Why is it the father and less the mother? What is the role that the father has been given by God? To lead. One of my, one of my dear mentors... Uh, I, I, I tried to take every class he taught at seminary. Um, Dr. Alex Montoya, um, a, a dear, dear brother down there at Master Seminary, he would tell us, gentlemen, you know, in our church planting class, he said, when you get the men, you get the village, you know, and you get the society. Shepherd the men. Pour into the men. Teach the men. Invest in the men. And then often, not always, but more often than not, the rest will follow. Um, 
Interesting quote here in terms of commitment, quote, a mother's role may be to encourage and confirm, but it's not primary to her adult offspring's decision. Mother's choices have dramatically less effect upon children than their fathers. And without him, she has little effect on the primary lifestyle choices her offspring make in their religious observances. Right? Uh, James Alexander says this, quote, there is no member of a household whose individual piety is of such importance to all the rest uh, as the father or head. And there is no one whose soul is so directly influenced by the exercise of domestic worship where the head of a family is lukewarm or worldly, he will send the chill through the whole house. Underline that or like circle that or highlight that. That's helpful right there. Family is lukewarm. And even, and, if you're, and even if you don't have kids or whatever it is, it's just you and her, this still applies. Where the head of a family is lukewarm or worldly, he will send the chill through the whole house. Like leader, like people. Like husband, and the rest often is the case. Like dad, and so on. You know? Uh, Foster and Tennant, in their excellent book, uh, they wrote a, a, a helpful book. I don't agree with 100% of of everything in it, but it's called, uh, It's Good to Be a Man. Just came out about a year ago. He says, quote, because the father is the head, as he goes, so goes his household. And as the household goes, so goes the society. So it's safe to say then, in part, the condition of a society, a society is a commentary on that society's approach to both masculinity and, and marriage and fathering. This isn't some complex thing like, oh, we, we got to like do this, this complex psychological study and, and then dump billions into social engineering and billions into teachers unions and billions into this and that and scratching our head. What's the problem here? It's simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. It's the men that they would be present by God's grace and we would fear the Lord and walk in his ways. So uh, just conclusion, obvious observations. There's no denying that fatherlessness plays a huge role in the decay of society. When individuals abandon God's design for gender, sexuality, and the family, catastrophic consequences result. Scripture is clear that the order of the home begins with the stability that comes from a man finding a wife, becoming a father if God allows. Men must take responsibility then for doing this. Okay? So we've observed from the beginning that masculinity is under attack. Uh, at the beginning of this study, we observed, you know, articles everywhere from, you know, Vogue to Time magazine uh, and, and on and on and on that just disdain the idea of a man who believes in God, is present, and has, a, has an immutable or an unchangeable view of morality and spirituality, and then seeks to carry that out not only in himself, but in this areas of influence where he is involved in society. The, the society loathes that, loathes that, because society is godless and fallen. Okay? So, um, you know, we talked about how Satan attacks us in many ways. Um, gender, sexuality, children, Virgil Walker um, from the G3 ministry, some uh, brothers, brothers uh, in arms, very united brothers. Uh, he says, quote, women need to reject the feminism. I don't think this is in your notes, by the way, but let me just read it. That has sold sexual promiscuity as female empowerment and has told women that they don't need men. The result? Women are working longer and harder, waiting later, later to get married, preferring instead to focus on their career as a means of providing for themselves. Okay, all right, so number two, special revelation. So number one, we, we're looking at general revelation, just the statistics we see in the world about the need for fathering. Number two, special revelation, just a fancy term for scripture, the Bible, and the need for fathering kids. Kids enter the world, society enters the world naturally depraved and dead in sin. 
Uh, we quoted Jeremiah 17.9 earlier. Romans 3.10, as it's written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. No one who does good, not even one. This is our natural state apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. In the absolute sense, you cannot do good as, it, as good is defined as glorifying and honoring God. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest. If you don't have that, those verses, in your worldview, as understand, here's where, here is the natural state of society. If you don't have that in your worldview, you're never going to be able to understand, diagnose, and deal with the, the spiritual moral decay personally in our own lives and then outside of ourselves in society. You're never going to be able to understand it, properly understand it, and deal with it. The, the reason for all these things is, of course, underneath it all, is depravity. Depravity is just that theological term that describes those verses we read in the Bible. You need to have, we need to have this term and understanding in our vocabulary. This is what's fueling all this underneath. Because the human heart is naturally wicked. The human heart naturally loathes the idea that there's a God above it and tells it what to do. No, actually, God determined your gender. The, the, the whole transgender thing is a rebellion against God and that God actually fixes things in your life. Like, you can't do anything about weather and, and gender and many other things in life. God, God decided these things, right? And the human heart naturally loathes the idea that I need to obey God. That's a loathsome idea. I need to submit to God. I need to bow my knee to Christ. And that's all here in fear and walk. And when we say, no, I'm not going to do that, you have this happen right here. Th this, is, this is not complicated stuff. And if, and if we as a people would get back to Scripture as a nation and as a society, these things wouldn't be hard to understand or address. No, they're not going to become perfectly fixed, right? That's heaven. That's, that's when Christ returns and, uh, and, and those who have put faith in him are glorified. But understanding this and beginning to address it properly would, would look much different. But we're a society that hates God by nature because that's in the human heart. It needs to come back and be saved by faith in Christ. So kids enter the world prepackaged with sin and foolishness. Proverbs 22:15. foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Um, and the rod there, it's not metaphorical. It's not, you know, a timeout or hot sauce or, you know, you get five minutes less of recess. In, 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 in Hebrew, it means a physical, real instrument to cause, motivated by love, by that parent, a memorable experience on the backside of that child for understood and biblical disobedience. And there's way more verses than that, and we talk in detail about that in our, our parenting class. I'm not going to get into it here, okay? Kids and humans don't enter the world with programmed with self-control and a fear of God, much less their generation. They need parenting to help with it. And even more so, they need fathering, okay? Um, let's talk a little bit about fathering. I'm going to talk about... Um, just many things. A lot of these, you know, you guys could add to this. You can improve on it. Um, things like compassion. We'll talk about fathering and training our kids to work. We might not get to that this morning. Fathering and, and training our kids uh, to have a right view of sexuality and approaching the world and that. Uh, but before that, letter A, uh, father and fathering and shepherding care under number three, compassion is the dad trait. Uh, compassion needs to be a dad trait. How do we know that? Psalm 103 uh, 13, uh, the, the, the psalmist, David here, makes an interesting observation. He says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who
who fear him. Again, we're back to this essential thing. But it's interesting, more to the point, that David, you know, David was a, a busy guy, a king, um, wasn't a perfect guy, knew he needed the Lord like the rest of us, and needed a savior like the rest of us, needed forgiveness like all of us. But he observes that, well, it's known that a father has compassion on his children. That, that's a known thing, first line of that verse. And in the same way, the Lord has compassion on us. So David, is, I've, I've sometimes wondered, why doesn't that verse say, just as a mother has compassion on her children, or just as a grandmother has compassion on her grandchildren? I sometimes wonder, why doesn't it say that? Because dads, as the leader of the home, called to imitate God, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, be imitators of God and walk in love. David says, dads, as they, as they set sail and they set the tone in the home, one, not only, of the traits of fathering is to be compassion. Helpful on the children. Compassion. Which presupposes presence. P-R-E, I can't spell, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E. Is that right, Seth? Okay, great. <laughs> And Andy, thank you, Andy. I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, as we think about, let's get this one out of here. Right over your head there. Did I make it? No? I wasn't, I wasn't good at basketball. I was more of an outdoor guy. <laughs> yeah. So compassion, that's one, and no particular order here. That's a, that, that's a trait not only of, of discipleship as we come alongside others or for, you know, for our wives, but that, that's, a, that's a dad trait. And all of this presupposes presence, right? I'm around. Um, I'm around. I'm working. You know, I'm, I, you work your 50 hours, but you're still around. Um, it makes an analogy. Just as a father has compassion on his children. So just as implies an axiom. It means, okay, you know how this is the case. Well, in that way, so also, Scripture sees compassion as a dad trait. The Hebrew word there in Psalm 103 for compassion, it has the idea of showing mercy, um, taking pity on, showing love, have feelings and actions of kindness and concern for one and difficulty, regardless of one's state of guilt for an offense. Um, so leadership in the home is to be accompanied with compassion. That doesn't mean you let Junior get away with everything. That doesn't mean you forsake the verses as a dad on using the rod, right? Because Proverbs 13, 24 and 24, 13 and 14 say, he who spares the rod hates his child, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently, right? So we blend these together in the administration of the rod. And as they get older, you know, setting them out and talking about sexuality and training them to have a good work ethic it's done with compassion. Mercy when they fail. Assurance that, hey, you failed. I'm still here with you. We have a savior. I love you. You know, I'm not going to explode on you if you make a mistake. Compassion. Compassion affirmation. Lots of Jesus in the cross, right? In the home, we want a lots of cross. Christ, hey, Christ died for that. Uh, I've failed in that way too. Um, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I came knowing, knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, that ought to be an anthem in the home as well. Lots of cross, not lots of law. Okay, Psalm 127 says that children are a gift, and we want to tell our, 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 our kids as dads, you certainly are God's gift to me. You're a present. You know how we get presents at Christmas and do that? Well, you're one to me. Even and maybe especially in moments of disobedience. We want our kids to hear that, right? I'm glad that you're my son or my daughter, no matter what you do, including when you move out of the house, I'll always love you, pray for you, and be here for you. You can call me anytime for anything, no matter what situation you're in, I'll help you. Compassion's a dad trait. Alongside of, let her be discipline. Um, this is, dads need to lead in this. Yeah, when dad's at work, and sometimes, you know, mom has the bulk of the time, she'll have to do a lot of it, but... You can do things like when dad gets home, he'll, he'll do this, right? We'll have a talk, things like that. Hebrews 12 says discipline is inherently loving. By, by the way, a lot of the social ills would be 
very much decreased if discipline was implemented at a young age. Where, because discipline fundamentally comes from the philosophy of we are not God. That's where all, that's all discipline starts there. We're not God. And so therefore, we, we have to obey someone that's not ourselves. And the book of Judges in the Bible, which was documenting what happened, you know, over a few hundred years, around 1300, 1400 BC, 1300 BC, is in the Bible to show us what society will, will turn out as when people think, well, I just do what's right in my own eyes. Uh, it's what's right for me is what's right. The book of Judges, if you want to read, well, what, what will that look like in a society? I mean, you can look at our own society today, or you can read the book of Judges as well. So Hebrews 12, 5, um, this is talking about discipline as Christians, as grown people, where in other words, God allows hard things in our lives to happen to get our attention. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Okay? That's, that's again, talking about Christians, like grown guys, men and women who are believers, but the principle applies. And then with younger children, again, Proverbs 13, 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Uh, Doug Wilson right, rightly observes, quote, refusal to discipline amounts to hatred and is simply a slow, cruel for a man to disown his son, clearly marking him out as illegitimate. True discipline is the lifetime. When we discipline biblically in a context of compassion and presence, your child more than likely will learn to respect you. Discipline is commanded, of course. Uh, Roman numeral two there. Do not hold back discipline from the child, Proverbs 23, 13. Although you strike him with a rod, he'll not die. You'll, you shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from shale. That's a means of grace there. Not regeneration, but with depravity. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. And the way that happens is a presence of compassion. Do not provoke your children to anger. How do you do that? Presence with compassion. Some of those affirmations we talked about before. Disciplining for things they understand. Oh, I understand I disobeyed. Dad isn't just flying off the handle and, you know, in his decadent little girly mood right now. He's, there's predictability. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Little Roman numeral three, however, discipline as an all fathering must occur in the context of the fruit of the spirit. So that kind of comes under here. And we talked about that. So, so discipline and training happens in this context and more tangibly, Galatians 5, 22 to 23 and the fruit of the spirit that that's like the vehicle that carries parenting in which I do it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? These are the traits in which fathering is to occur, not just presence, but by God's grace, presence of the fruit of the spirit. And that's hard. This is why dads need to have a quiet time. I do. And dads, why, why dads need to go to church and get, get the Bible poured into them to help us with these things. Fathers must discipline in a context of humble compassion, affirmation. We talked about this. Um, fathers must, uh, bullet point there, exemplify humility before their children. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Dad's still the leader, but dad needs to be a humble leader. Telling Junior, I need forgiveness too or just in any leadership. Maybe you lead a Fortune 50 company. You need to tell your board, your board needs to know that you're not king. You're a leader among equals. Yeah, a lot of the decision-making might fall with you, but we're compassion, compassionate. We have the fruit of the spirit, whether I'm president of the United States, king of a country, or dad in my home. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and endless faithfulness, and self-control. This is the context in which leadership 
You don't need to like put on like mean guy hat to be a good leader, quite the opposite. Not leadership by intimidation, but leadership by compassion, initiation, example, humility. Right? And we could say, couldn't we, Ian, that, uh, you know, humility, it like fuels all these. And under humility, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Christ, looking at the cross, fearing God, walking in his ways by the grace of God. So there's kind of like, an, like a geyser effect here. It starts down here and, you know, whatever leadership, fathering, we understand that fathering equals leading. It's a form of leadership. It's a, it's a context of leadership, right? In your job, you're going to lead a different way. In your marriage, you're going to lead as well. Um, whatever else you do, if you volunteer for some board, you're going to lead as well. But all of it needs to be, be carried out in these general characteristics by the grace of God alone, fearing God. Uh, James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, this includes, so in fathering, coming back here, you know, too many times uh, we've heard from guys and gals in their 20s, a little older, say, who say things like, yeah, you know, dad, dad, dad was an angel at church on Sunday, but he was a devil Monday through Saturday. You know, dad, dad buttoned himself up, you know, at 10 a.m. on, on, on uh, Sunday morning to go warm a pew. But when we exited, you know, the holy house, it, it was dad came unglued. And too often that's been the case. And may God have mercy on us that that would not be the case. And that if and when we do sin against our various realms of leadership, whatever it is, a wife, a board, a kids, we have the humility to ask forgiveness. Ask forgiveness. And sometimes as dads or in different spheres of leadership, we can, we can think, well, if I, if I acknowledge a mistake or ask forgiveness or, or exemplify humility, well, that, that will show weakness and I won't have the influence that I, that I need to have or that I once have. Well, fooey on that. It's the opposite. Yeah, and, and anyways, like the people you lead, whether it's your wife, your board, your kids, they see your flaws anyways. Right? It's not like it's not like they don't they're stupid and they can't see you. You know, there's just mirrors all around and the mirrors are them. Right? It's you who doesn't want it's me who doesn't want to see it. And so that's why the humility is critical in these realms of leadership, fathering the board, marriage, whatever. And I and I need to grow in that. I wanted to say remind you, brothers, I'm not here saying saying this like I've arrived in all these things. I have a I have a lot of work to do in all these areas. You know, you can ask my wife, you can ask my kids. And may God strengthen us. Okay. Um, by the way, let, let, let me just uh, another observation here that I found interesting in, in 15 years of ministry and 13 and a half of parenting. Um, fathers and leaders, spiritual leaders, whatever, we ought not to assume that the people that we are influencing or leading, our kids, whatever it might be, understand that you understand how much you need the cross. Don't assume that they understand that you understand how much you need the cross. Um, the mercy of God, the daily grace of God, the forgiveness. I've sat with church members before and other individuals and in other spheres and, and talked about this and have had somewhat surprised reactions where I'm saying, you know, man, I, I need to grow in walking with the Lord and fearing him. And I need to grow in humility, the fruit of the spirit, compassion, leading, fathering. And I've had people give surprised reactions before and say along the lines of, oh, I didn't know you thought that about yourself. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, am I walking around talking about like everyone needs this, but not me? Certainly not the case. Um, and I've had people say, oh, I didn't know that you thought that you daily needed the grace of God. Um, it's like, whoa, yes, I need it perhaps more than anyone in the church. And so whether it's the people God calls us to shepherd in a small group, our board, a wife, kids, uh, I, I, outside the home, inside the home, I think it's helpful for them to hear and for us to not assume, helpful for them to hear how, that we understand how much we need the grace of God. 
in view of our sin and in, in view of the fact that we have not arrived in these things and that we would say that and tell them that. You know, because people start to just assume the opposite sometimes for various reasons. I need the death of Christ for my sins, that we say that in our spheres of leadership. I have sinned in so many ways against the Lord. I am no better than anyone. I need the Lord's discipline, lots of gospel, et cetera, et cetera. Don't be shy nor a miser in how we're saying and how much we're saying that and letting people know that um, with whom we live life and lead. Right? Thoughts? Comments? I think it can be the case that if we're shy and saying that, we might be forgetting that ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> because Luke 6.45 says, out the mouth speaks that which fills the heart, right? Yeah, great observation, Colby. Thank you. Usually, in your spheres of leadership inside the home, outside the home, and, and I would, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say like 100% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, as you are genuinely humble about that and your need for the cross and for Christ, whether it's your Fortune 50 company and you as the CEO or you as a dad or, or, or a husband or whatever it is, when you are honest about those things, that's going to endear them to you and create more unity and more like relaxedness, more peace, and by God's grace, more helpful influence, right? If I eliminate this from my sphere of leadership and this and this, then it's intimidation, it's fear, it's walking on eggshells, it's all this garbage worldly stuff. And may God help us. Um, briefly, just consequences of not disciplining biblically. In our notes there, bullet point. Consequences of not disciplining biblically. Eli's failure, for, this is from 1 Samuel 3. Eli's failure to rebuke the disobedience of his sons brought judgment. And 1 Samuel in your notes there, 3.13 says, um, the Lord is saying this to Samuel, I've told him, that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Well, I don't want to make them mad or do whatever. So there's, you know, on all this, there's a balance. He didn't rebuke his sons for their sins. And so you know what happens in 1 Samuel there. I mean, Israel, the whole nation is judged. Like 30,000 people die in a war after this partly because one of the leaders of the nations didn't rebuke his son. David's failure to cross, in quotes there, Adonijah, 1 Kings 1.5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted him, that's one of David's wives, exalted himself saying, I'll be king. Right? This, this, I'm God, I can do whatever I want. Like, no, you can't. You're not God. So he prepared for himself chariots and horses and the 50 men to run before him. Verse 6, his father had never crossed him or rebuked him, is the idea, at any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. So Adonijah, the fourth son of David, likely a spoiled kid, just spoiled, handsome, good-looking, you know, had lots of favor, an undisciplined young man apparently had received much admiration. David, verse 5, had never crossed him. The Hebrew word there, crossed, has the idea of pained. P-A-I-N-E-D, pained him, grieved him. In other words, disciplined him. Um, let's finish with this one. we got about four minutes. Letter C, fathers center the home and life around scripture. So we looked at compassion, the context for fathering, discipline, and then centering the home around scripture. We need a content. Well, dad, where do, you, where do you get these ideas, dad? Well, better not just say, well, me. We don't want to say that because we're not God. We want to say from God's word. Um, and we get this, that we should center the home around scripture from Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. 
uh, seemed to be Jesus' favorite book in the Bible. Um, the context of that is the Shema. The Shema is a, uh, like a saying, a, po a portion of scripture that the, uh, the Old Testament worshipers would recite like a couple times a day. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel. It's, it's called the Shema because Shema means hear. So it comes from that. If you asked, you know, an, an, an Israelite believer back in the day, what's the Shema? Oh, Deuteronomy 6, you know, 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Uh, well, your might, excuse me. They would recite this twice daily. Um, to love the Lord our God. Love means there in Hebrew, a wholehearted commitment, unwavering, unwavering commitment. It meant a persevering commitment, a devoted commitment, humble, tender commitment, a knee-bowing commitment to God with heartfelt obedience. That's what love mean, meant and means. So th this, was, this was to be the thing about the man. The Israelite men would recite this twice a day. This is the thing about the man. He loves the Lord his God with all his, with all his might, all his soul. Knee-bowing love, tender love, obedience, commitment, persevering. This is to be the anchor point of the man and leader of the home, leader of society. It started here. The stability of God's old covenant people, and thus the stability of the family, and thus the stability of the workplace and the village started here. An all-out love for God. I, whatever I'm going to do as a man, whether I'm a president or a cobbler or anything in between, whatever, young or old, it's love for God. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and so centering, so doing, doing dadology in the home or leadershipology wherever started here. It's anchored in here. Again, the blessed life. Fear presupposes love. Walk, obey presupposes love. And I, want to, and I want to say to us, men, is that our heart? Is that our heart? Is that your heart? Is that my heart? A love for God. A knee-bowing adoration for our God. Is that our heart this morning and today? Is that going to be our heart tomorrow by the grace of God? This is where it all starts with the man, with his leadership, with his life, with his existence. Nothing matters if we don't have this. Behold, what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his soul, he loses his soul because he doesn't love God. So as we think about leading, we think about loving God. Again, back here, Christ in our crosshairs, meditating on him. The stability, of, again, of our lives is love for God. All-out love for God. As quickly as love for God is commanded, so is concern, discipleship, holistic shepherding, and formation of the next generation. If there's anything that competes with the Word of God and therefore love of God in the home, it has no place. And as, as we leave here this morning, if, if love for God means, is my, in my spheres of leadership, if there's something else competing for my affection, my devotion, and the home, it needs to go. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your might. And then comes Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, and we'll end here. These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. So if we're going to have an influence, and we must, and we're going to center life around Scripture, and we are commanded to, we've got to go down to Deuteronomy 6.4 and 6.5. My heart is given to God in a knee-bowing adoration and loyalty to him. And then outflows, I'm going to teach them diligently. And Father in heaven, may that be our hearts by the grace, by your grace alone. Uh, through the cross of Jesus Christ, See, we can't even begin to love God until 
We have confessed our sins to you, believed upon Jesus Christ who has died on the cross for our sins and risen from the grave. And then we can begin to love you, first to receive your love, and may we do so. And I pray for all of us brothers, whatever spheres of leadership we find ourselves in, that we would have a love for you, O oh God, and ever be growing in our love for you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Give these brothers, give us as men strength in all that we're facing today to apply this, not merely be hearers of the word, but doers also. Until we gather for corporate worship on Sunday, in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Thanks, gentlemen. Good to see you all. We will not gather next Thursday. There is no entrust next Thursday because over half of us will be at the Shepherds Conference, a uh, Christian men's leadership conference in L.A. If you're not joining us this year, join us next year, please. We will not meet next Thursday, but the Thursday after, whatever Thursday that is, the 15th, we will meet. Have a good one.